You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, welcome, welcome. Hey, everybody. Welcome. It's Monday. That means it's time for Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve. I'm your host each week as we look at the wild and wacky world of American politics. And this past week, uh, we've got some prime examples, which we'll get into in a second. So let's kick it off, as we always do, with an update on where we are with the uh, coronavirus, COVID-19. To date, we have 28.98 million uh, cases reported and 524.9 thousand people have died from the disease. On the looking upward side, uh, 94 and a half million people have received at least one dose of the coronavirus vaccine, one of the three now out on the market. Uh, Johnson & Johnson's vaccine has been shipping out to locations across the country and is starting to get uh, injected into people's arms. Right now in the U.S., we're averaging between two and a half and three million uh, inoculations a day. Uh, that is outstanding. And just to note, uh, we are on track to uh, exceed uh, the promised 100 million doses in 100 days uh, that came out of the Biden administration. So we are, are on our way. However, we still have the need to you know, do the mask wearing and social distancing and all of the protocols that we've been talking about here on this show for many, many, many months now, and you know, it is all over the news. Uh, some other things happening in the COVID news realm. I uh, wanna, wanna dig into a little of that uh, right off the bat here. Um, what we've been seeing, and, and as I said, last week was a you know, wild and crazy week uh, uh, with regard to COVID and politics. Uh, we saw announcements that came from several states, uh, most notably Texas, where they are eliminating all COVID-19 restrictions statewide, uh, even though we are still not clear of this uh, pandemic and Texas continues to see high levels of cases and deaths, uh, yet the governor of Texas has decided that, you know, he is canceling um, all of the COVID-related restrictions that are in place uh, in an effort to get businesses to reopen and kids to get back into school and all of those activities. As I said, even though uh, we are not clear of the disease yet uh, and other states are following suit in some form or fashion, uh, Florida has announced uh, some easing of restrictions just before spring break week. Uh, and, you know, there are some other states. And uh, I have a list that was uh, compiled, and I'll go through just a few states uh, with what they've got going on in terms of uh, response to the COVID 19 uh, pandemic. In Alabama, uh, Governor Ivey has extended the safer at home order until April 9th. Uh, the order continues the statewide mask requirement when individuals are in public and in close contact with others. 
Connecticut uh, has done a few things. Uh, you know, Governor Lamont of Connecticut announced that he plans to revise some requirements that were implemented in Connecticut at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the changes focused on capacity limits and travel restrictions include uh, all capacity I'm sorry, all capacity limits will be eliminated for the following businesses. Uh, restaurants, uh, although they are keeping some table uh, capacity maximums and mandatory 11 p.m. closing. Retail locations, uh, libraries, personal services, uh, that would be things like barbershops, hair salons, and so forth. Uh, indoor recreation, but not including theaters, which will still be under the mandate to, re to maintain a 50% maximum capacity gyms and fitness centers, museums, aquariums, and zoos, offices and housing, houses of worship, gathering sizes uh, under the, the uh, restriction changes will be revised uh, to be social gatherings at private residences. We'll have a maximum permitted size of 25 persons indoors and 100 persons outdoors. Social gatherings at commercial venues, 100 person indoor, 200 outdoor limits. All sports will be allowed to practice and compete, and sports tournaments will be permitted. And Connecticut's travel advisory will be modified from a requirement to a recommended guidance. Uh, again, that's going to be uh, coming up uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, beginning at the end of the month, capacity limits on early childhood classes will increase from 16 to 20. Uh, some others that are coming up, um, outdoor amusement parks will be able to open uh, in April. Uh, outdoor event venues can increase to 50% capacity capped at 10,000 people. Indoor stadiums can open at 10% uh, capacity. And uh, these protocols will remain in effect you know, until further notice. Some others that uh, are also included is face coverings and masks are required and bars that only serve beverages uh, must remain closed. So, you know, it, it's uh, a pretty wide-ranging uh, release of restrictions in Connecticut. In the District of Columbia, uh, Mayor Bowser and DC Health, led by Dr. LaQuandra Nesbitt, announced updates to the process of registering for a vaccination appointment in Washington, DC. Beginning next week, the district will switch over to a pre-registration system where individuals will be able to provide their information to DC Health through a website uh, or by calling the district's call center. Uh, as appointments are made available, individuals who have pre-registered will receive an email, phone call, or text message alerting them that they have an opportunity to make the appointment. Uh, in Florida, in Miami-Dade County, uh, the mayor there has issued an executive order further extending the state of local emergency for an additional seven-day period, and that uh, began on March 4th. Uh, in Hawaii, on March 2nd, uh, in Kauai County, Mayor Derek uh, Kawakami sent proposed changes to travel rules to Hawaii's governor under, rule, under their Rule 25. Uh, under that rule, trans-Pacific travelers would be exempt from Hawaii's 10-day travel quarantine by participating in the state's safe travels pre-travel testing program. Uh, those rules will go into effect if approved on April 5th. In Kansas, on March 4th, 
Governor Laura Kelly announced it over the next week. Kansas will have completed prime vaccinations for every K-12 educator and staff member who wanted one. So they're on goal to put uh, all of their teachers fully vaccinated by the week of March 22nd. Uh, they're also going to uh, launch a plan to vaccinate meatpacking plant workers in Kansas. Uh, all Under the plan, all meatpacking workers who want to be vaccinated will receive the first dose within the first two weeks. So, you know, Kansas is moving forward uh, with uh, expanding their, vac their vaccination programs to key industries. Up in Maine, Governor Mills announced a change to his vaccine distribution plan. Beginning March 3, pre-K to 12 school staff and child care providers will be eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine regardless of their age. Uh, this change was made pursuant to the Biden administration's directive calling on states to prioritize vaccinations of educators. So Maine is going to be moving forward with an expansion of its vaccination program and focusing on getting educators vaccinated. Uh, they're also going to be uh, accessing uh, the federal retail pharmacy program, which includes uh, Hannaford, Walgreens, and Walmart pharmacies in Maine. Moving on in Minnesota, on March 3rd, Governor Walls announced the first Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine doses have arrived. Uh, Minnesota is re will receive 45,200 doses of the vaccine this week. Uh, as of right now, Minnesota providers have administered more than 1.4 million doses to roughly 930,000 Minnesotans. Over in Nevada, the state released guidance regarding the upcoming May 1st transition of authority over COVID-19 mitigation measures to local authorities. The guidance includes long-term planning outlines and sets forth the minimum requirements that local authorities must consider and address in their mitigation and enforcement plans in order to assume authority over the COVID-19 mitigation and management efforts at the county level. So, you know, these uh, plans must receive endorsement from the local health district or authority uh, and, you know, in, in cities with populations greater than 100,000, uh, that would also include the city manager. In New Jersey, Governor Murphy signed Executive Order 229, extending the moratorium preventing residents from having their utilities disconnected through at least the end of June 2021. So that means that uh, all residential gas, electric, and water utilities, both public and private, uh, will not be able to disconnect people uh, from from their utility services, uh, and it also applies to cable and telecommunications providers for households that have one or more school-aged children. Uh, and in addition, the rule will also not allow utilities to charge a late fee or fees to reconnect services that have been disconnected. Uh, also on that date, uh, Governor Murphy signed another executive order allowing indoor wedding receptions to operate at the lesser of 35% capacity or 150 individuals. For outdoor wedding receptions, up to 150 individuals will be permitted to gather. Face coverings will still be required, except when people are eating and drinking. Uh, across the river in New York, Governor Cuomo announced the opening of the New York State FEMA mass vaccination sites in Albany, Buffalo, Rochester, and Yonkers. In addition, Governor Cuomo announced another 12 community-based pop-up 
vaccination sites beginning this week at public housing development churches and community centers, schools and fire stations. So, you know, that brings more than 120 community-based pop-up sites have been administering the vaccines. Uh, also, Governor Cuomo announced that beginning on April 2nd, uh, events, arts, and entertainment venues can reopen at 33% capacity with one, up to 100 people indoors and up to 200 people outdoors. Uh, if all attendees present provide proof of negative tests prior to entry, capacity could permissibly increase to 150 people indoors and 500 people outdoors. Regardless of capacity, face covering and social distancing must be maintained. Uh, in Ohio, Governor Mike DeWine announced a final pathway for the state of Ohio to end its mask mandate and other health orders related to COVID-19. During a recent address, DeWine stated that when Ohio gets down to 50 COVID-19 cases per 100,000 people for a period of two weeks, all health orders will be removed. Uh, that, that standard is uh, the standard measure that they have used since early in the pandemic, uh, he explained. Currently, only one of Ohio's 88 counties has an infection rate below DeWine's new two-week benchmark of 50 cases uh, per 100,000 um, Ohioans, and that's Holmes County at 47.8. In Wisconsin, uh, Public Health Madison and Dane County announced teachers, school staff, and child care providers will be able to receive the COVID-19 vaccine starting on March 9th. Uh, vaccination at Alliant Energy Center will begin on March 9th and run through the week in order to quickly vaccinate school staff who are now being prioritized. Uh, so, you know, there there is a lot of change that is happening around the country. Uh, of course, you know, the, the news has been all over the plan in Texas to eliminate uh, most, if not all, of the COVID-related restrictions. Uh, and, you know, also Florida has followed suit to some extent by uh, rolling back uh, a good portion of its COVID restrictions. Again, just in time for um, spring break down in the Sunshine State. So we will have to keep an eye on these locations to see what impacts, if any, it will have on their, their state totals and on the national total for, you know, COVID vaccine, COVID um, virus infections uh, going forward. Uh, as you may recall, uh, last fall, the uh, annual motorcycle rally in Sturgis, uh, South Dakota occurred, and they had over, I believe, 350,000 people attend that. And that has led to well in excess of 1,000 people uh, contracting the disease directly from the event and an unknown number of people who con contracted the disease through, uh, through you know, cross-contamination with other individuals. And those spikes uh, were observed not just in South Dakota, but in many areas around the country as well. And uh, in related news, uh, also another big story that, that came out at the end of last week, um, the Senate passed President Biden's COVID relief bill uh, along a party line vote 
sending the legislation with $1,400 stimulus checks back to the House to reconcile the differences between the two bills. Uh, you know, in USA Today's article, uh, the Democrat-controlled Senate sun Saturday overcame re Republican roadblocks and a debate that lasted beyond 24 hours to pass President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package, which would provide millions of Americans with $1,400 direct payment, billions of dollars for vaccine distribution, and funds to help reopen schools and colleges. Uh, the chamber passed the bill following a session that began around 9 a.m. on Friday and ended approximately 12.30 p.m. on Saturday after a votorama of proposed changes from both parties. The final vote was 50 to 49, with all Republicans voting against the measure and all members of the Senate Democratic Caucus supporting it. Senator Dan Sullivan, Republican of Alaska, was not present for the vote. Uh, Senator, uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said, now we can tell the American people help is on the way. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell countered that the Senate has never spent $2 trillion in a more haphazard way or through a less rigorous process. You know, this bill was, uh, you know, one of the key planks in uh, President Biden's election campaign and you know, was, you know, is, is likely to be considered, you know, one of his uh, key legislative accomplishments as president. Uh, it also signals that the Democrats are willing uh, to, you know, go with their majority when they cannot uh, get or the Republicans will not give uh, any bipartisan support to, you know, important initiatives going forward. And, you know, we'll be, we'll be talking about this process, you know, in, in future shows as well. Uh, it, is, it has started a lot of conversation, particularly around the status of what's going to happen with the filibuster. You know, and there are many members of the Senate um, on the Democratic side and even a few on the Republican side who are calling for the filibuster to be, you know, at most eliminated or at the least modified in order to make it easier for bi bipartisan support for selected bills to to occur and also to remove the 60 vote hurdle that's required to end debate on bills so that legislation can move forward more uh, quickly through the upper house of Congress. So there's a lot of discussion going on, a lot of moving parts uh, that are occurring. Um, you know, the, the key is the, the, the Senate remains, you know, divided 50-50. Um, the House has a slight Democratic uh, margin, uh, which means that any legislation that the Biden administration or the Democrats wish to get through uh, must have you know bipartisan support or must have a, a completely locked down democratic caucus in order to pass uh, pretty much in either house so you know in in terms of this covid bill some of the things that this bill provides uh, 
First, most Americans earning up to 75000 would receive a $1,400 stimulus check. Uh, unemployment benefits would be extended through August and would amount to $300 a week, which is down from what the House bill proposed at $400 uh, and is one of the elements that will need to be um, resolved and compromised. Sends $350 billion to state and local governments whose revenue has declined because of COVID-19's impact on the economy. Allocates $130 billion to help fully reopen schools and colleges. Uh, allots $30 billion to help renters and landlords weather economic losses. Devo devotes $50 billion for small business assistance. And dedicates $160 billion for vaccine development, distribution, and related needs. In addition, it also expanded the child tax credit up to $3,600 per child. Uh, the, the games and, and strategies that came into play as this bill moved through the Senate were you know, very clearly illustrated by a, a motion from Senator Ron Johnson, which forced the Senate to read aloud all 628 pages of Biden's COVID bill. Uh, what occurred is the Senate clerks uh, took turns reading through the bill uh, and, and reading it into the record uh, again, which took you know, roughly about 10 hours to do. Uh, and then in addition, they also had uh, this, this so-called vote-a-rama and we've talked about this on on prior shows where, you know, one party introduces, you know, many dozens of bills or amendments to the bill and the Senate has to stop review and vote on each one. Um, so, you know, the the game still continue. One of the things one of the key points in the battle for the covid-19 bill was uh, what would happen to the element in the bill that called for raising minimum minimum wage to $15 an hour. Uh, the, the measure was stricken from the Senate bill under a rule from the nonpartisan Senate parliamentarian, uh, which is, you know, frequently done when there are, are issues of question regarding whether or not an element of a bill is appropriate or not. However, that recommendation is non-binding unless the uh, majority party decides to override it. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, a another page in the battle for um, help for the American people uh, that we have seen transpire here in the 117th Congress uh, early on in the Biden administration. In related news, uh, related subject, uh, you know, there's been discussion about uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, and using the filibuster to block measures that the Republicans don't approve of uh, and, and keep the Democrats from voting uh, on these, these bills uh, through this delaying tactic. Um, so under, under the rules of the Senate, and you know, we've talked about the filibuster, I believe I brought it up in last week's show, 
Uh, it takes 60, 60 votes to end debate and move most bills to a vote. That's what the filibuster rule is all about. Uh, a filibuster you know, is a way for a minority party to, uh, to gain its will by forcing the majority to work even harder to garner the necessary votes in order to invoke cloture and bring the vote to the floor in an active manner. Uh, what is, is different is when the filibuster was uh, uh, reactivated in the early 70s, uh, what it meant was that a senator would need to take the Senate floor and stand and, and speak uh, on the bill or any subject they want, but they, could, they would not give up the floor uh, at, at all to allow the votes to go through unless the Senate could call for a vote and get 60 votes uh, to initiate cloture. Um, you know, and it, it was simply a case of where they would stand in the well of the Senate and talk, just continue talking for hours and hours and hours on end. And as I said, we talked about this and kind of went through some history of it in last week's show. And, you know, it, it is a, a tedious and exhausting process, or at least it was. Um, what it has been modified to in recent years is there's no longer the need uh, for a senator to take to the floor unless they want to, um, but it is merely the need for the minority party to indicate that they are uh, looking to filibuster the bill uh, through you know notification given to the to the Senate, to the leadership of the body of the Senate. And, you know, they don't have to stand up and talk. All they have to do is uh, introduce a motion to, to filibuster, and that will hold up votes on the bill until a corresponding closure vote uh, is taken. So, you know, it, it is a, a controversial tactic and it has come under scrutiny from, you know, an increasing number of Democratic leaders, including, among others, uh, former President Obama, former Senate leader Harry Reid of Nevada, and Senate Rules Committee Chair Amy Klo Klobuchar of Minnesota, uh, have all called for scrapping the rule. Uh, some progressive leaders are calling for the uh, filibuster rule to be heavily modified in order to make it... Um, a, a, a more workable solution. So we will see how that turns out and uh, you know I'll keep you posted. So let's let's break right here and then when we come back. We're going to talk about uh, some state level things that are occurring uh, in, as to what some of the states are doing uh, as well as some interesting stories that came up over the last 10 days. Uh, that I want to bring to your attention. So you're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, and we'll be right back after the break. Hi, I'm Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Because of the COVID-19 virus, we have had to learn new ways to be together. We've had to find new ways to communicate. We have to find new ways to play. 
And we have to find new ways to keep each other safe. For myself and my family, I'm going to take the COVID-19 vaccine. To learn more about the vaccine, go to cdc.gov. Let's do this together. And welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. So, as I said in the first, at the end of the first segment, I uh, wanted to talk about some things going on in the States. And a, a news article came across my radar uh, last week, and it's been updated in the last couple of days. Uh, there is a bill, and, and this one clearly kind of sits in my WTF category. Uh, there's a bill moving through Kentucky's Senate that would make it a crime to insult or taunt a police officer during a riot. Supporters say the bill targets people who unlawfully cross the line, but opponents call it a blatant attempt to crush protests in violation of First Amendment rights. And this is from an article that was posted online by CBS News, and it was updated on March 5th. Uh, continuing with the article, Senate Bill 211, mandates up to three months imprisonment for a person who accosts, insults, taunts, or challenges a law enforcement officer with offensive or derisive words or makes gestures or other physical contact that would have a direct tendency to provoke a violent response from the perspective of a reasonable and prudent person. Uh, the article goes on to state that a person convicted of this misdemeanor charge would also face a $250 fine and be disqualified from public assistance benefits for three months. The bill also has a provision pushing back on the defund the police movement, stating that government entities that fund law enforcement agencies must, quote, maintain and improve their respective financial support. The bill advanced through the Senate's Veterans, Military Affairs, and Public Protection Committee on Thursday in a 7-3 to vote with only Republicans supporting it. It now moves to the full Senate and could be passed there as early as next and would then need to be passed in the House. Republicans control both chambers of Kentucky's legislature. Uh, it goes on to say that CBS News re requested comment from State Senator David Carroll, a Republican and retired police officer who was the bill's lead sponsor. Following publication of this story, he wrote in an email, After looking at your headline, I don't think I have anything to say to you. I missed the time when we actually had unbiased journalists. And that was a quote from Senator David Carroll. So... Let, let's let's break this down. Uh, there is a peaceful protest going on. Uh, it, it doesn't, you know, it does say in if there is a protest or a riot, but let's just say we have a peaceful protest going on, and you know the protesters are agitated. They're passionate about their cause, and you know the police are doing their job to control the crowd. And, you know, someone gets upset with what the police are doing and, you know, basically, for lack of a better term, cusses them out. That person could be arrested, charged with a misdemeanor crime, fined $250, spend three months in, you know, jail, 
and if they if they were receiving state benefits have those benefits ended for three months um really this is all i can say it the this is this is crazy uh we have the right to free speech in this country and if that speech includes saying some you know less than complimentary things about police officers we should not have to worry about being arrested fined and thrown in jail because of it uh it's it's you know just a another example of how you know legislation and laws in this country are are just going too far um you know it it's I, it boggles the mind with the the ideas that you know some of the state legislatures come up with in terms of you know how they deal with the public uh, or you know when, when we've we've talked about and we've looked at all of the instances where police have you know impacted uh, you know not only people's First Amendment rights but their Fourth Amendment rights as well uh, up to and including. Uh, shooting and killing uh, people uh, who were not armed and arguably, you know, may not have been posing a serious physical threat to to the police or to anything else. So, you know, now if this bill passes in Kentucky, you're going to need to watch what you say to a police officer if they construe it as an insult or a derisive comment. Uh, or, you know, they, they get their, their feelings especially hurt because of some words that you utter that they will have the ability to arrest you and prosecute you under this law, uh, put you in jail and fine you $250. And if you happen to be someone who receives, let's say, um, SNAP benefits or, you know, housing benefits from the state, those benefits would be shut off for three months. Um, I'm sorry, I just find that ridiculous to the extreme. But again, it, it indicates, you know, just where the mindset of our state governments uh, are in terms of how they think, uh, you know, people need to be treated. We talked in last week's show about uh, all of the efforts going on in, in states across the country with regard to voter suppression. You know, there are uh, 28 states that have over 100 different bills uh, pending in their legislatures with some form or other of changes, uh, restrictions, or, you know, eliminations of key elements of people's right to vote. Uh, And again, unfortunately, these efforts seem to be disproportionately targeted to the disenfranchised communities uh, in our country. So, you know, again, something that we need to make sure that we are communicating with our state legislators about uh, and, you know, our governor's office saying, you know, we disagree with this idea. We don't think it's a good idea. And we really think you should not vote to pass it. Otherwise, we may need to rethink our choices for our state legislators uh, in the the next election. You know, it, it's it's just uh, again, you know, our country is is just going in so many strange directions now that it it gets difficult to keep track of it all. 
you know. Um, in, in other news, uh, sort of related to this, but in dealing with the subject of protests and, you know, what's been going on over the last, you know, 10 years in this country with regard to uh, not only social injustice, but racial injustice and economic injustice uh, and, you know, gender injustice as well where the the result has been you know people taking to the streets uh and protesting which has led to clashes with police and unfortunately uh has led to the the injury or death of thousands of people mostly people of color uh in this country at the hands of you know our police departments now again i caveat this by saying not all police are bad you know, it, it is the actions of a few among their ranks that uh, are casting police officers in this negative light. The vast majority of police officers in this country uh, are, are fine, upstanding individuals who do their job day in, day out, and, you know, do not, you know, invoke violence. Um, I, I know many police officers. Uh, I have had police officers in my family and they've gone through their entire police career without ever having to draw their weapon except at the target range. Uh, but they have never had to draw their weapon, much less fire their weapon uh, in, in a police situation. So, you know, uh, again, we are talking about the actions of a few not the actions of police in general. And we, we always need to make sure that we keep that, that perspective in place. Now, that ties into the, the next thing I want to talk about, because this article uh, came up, and uh, it is a report uh, that shows that killings by police have declined after Black, Le Black Lives Matter protests. Um, a study also found that body camera use and community policing increased in places with the most active BLM movements. So, you know, the article goes on to say, since Black Lives Matter protests gained national prominence following the 2014 police killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, the movement has spread to hundreds of cities and towns across the U.S. Now, a new study shows police homicides have significantly decreased in most cities where such protests occurred. Black Lives Matter, or BLM, began when Oakland, California-based activist Alicia Garza posted a message of protest on Facebook after George Zimmerman, a neighborhood watch volunteer, who followed and fatally shot 17-year-old Trayvon Martin in Sanford, Florida, was acquitted of murder in 2013. Patrice Collars, another Oakland community organizer, began sharing Garza's message on social media along with the hashtag Black Lives Matter. The slogan soon spread, building into a largely leaderless movement against structural racism and police violence. Last year, spurred by a Minneapolis police officer's killing of George Floyd, millions of people demonstrated in hundreds of BLM protests throughout the U.S. Uh, it, it, it goes on to state you know, how Black Lives Matter represents a trend 
that goes beyond the decentralization that existed within the civil rights movement uh, and continues to talk about the question becomes, are Black Lives Matter protests having any real effect in terms of generating change? The data shows very clearly that where you had Black Lives Matter protests, killing of people by the police decreased. It's inescapable from this study that protest matters, that it can generate change. So, you know, what we're, what we're seeing is, you know, an, an, an absolutely positive impact that protests are having, which you can then take and contrast with the, the way the media portrays not only the protest movements going on in this country, and it's not just Black Lives Matter. I mean, there have been protests, you know, for LGBTQ rights. There have been protests for women's rights. Uh, the, the children from uh, Florida staged a very powerful rally and protest in Washington, D.C., looking to end gun violence that kills our children. So, I mean, it, it, the, the protest movement is alive and well in America right now. Um, but what we're seeing, and as the article points out, is that where we have had, you know, these Black Lives Matter protests, uh, lethal use or lethal force use by police departments has significantly decreased and noticeably so. You know, the article goes on to say uh, it's really difficult to measure Black Lives Matter protests and lethal use of force by the police, notes the study's author, Travis Campbell, an economist at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, this is mainly because comprehensive data on police killing are lacking. The federal government does not track police officers' lethal use of force, and media and grassroots organizations uh, attempt to fill the void via Freedom of Information Act's request and crowdsourcing efforts. Uh, because the natural, I'm sorry, because the national picture of police homicides remains incomplete, the big issue that you may un is that you may undercount the true number of fatal interactions with police, especially in lower population areas where media coverage may be lacking, Campbell says. To address this, in his study, he gave greater weight to results from larger cities, where he says news reports of police killings and protests likely had more accurate estimates of both. He analyzed the relationship between protests and police homicides using several distant, different techniques and consistently found similar results. So, you know, it, it's, it's really clear, and you know, I'll, I'll post a link to this article on the Facebook page, um, but it, it's clear, and as he says, the difference was significant in this study. It found police killings fell by 16.8% on average in municipalities that had BLM protests, compared with those that did not. When Campbell compared municipalities that already had similar trends in police homicides before BLM began, the estimate rose to 21.1%. So the, the article is, is painting the story that you know, the, the protest movement does have impacts. Uh, and you know, if the, the study here that focused on Black Lives Matter protests could be expanded to include other uh, protests that have also led to similar situations. I think we might find that there are similar uh, 
similar situations that have resulted. Uh, the bottom line is that, you know, protests do make a difference. Uh, we need the people. We need to be out there and making our voices heard, making our presence seen and felt uh, in peaceful ways that communicate what our wishes are for our elected officials, our law enforcement officials, you know, city, state, government, and all to understand how the people feel and you know that that change needs to come forward so an interesting article as i said i will post uh, a link to it on the facebook page and that will be up uh, by the time the show airs uh, later today and i i urge you to to read it uh and and spread the word about it because it is something that you know is is important uh and it does show that there is a positive trend uh, that is coming out of the protest movements here in this country. So, you know, I, I'd be interested to hear, uh, to, to gather your thoughts on that. Uh, let me know what your opinions are on, on that and, you know, other impacts that the protest movement is having or is not having in our country. Uh, send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com and let me know what you think. Uh, I'd love to get your comments. Uh, if if uh, you send it to me, uh, we'll bring it up and we'll, we'll hash it out on the show. You know, I'll give you my thoughts on it and we can start a dialogue that way. Uh, so and another related article that came up, uh, and again, this was another one of those, and I've mentioned this before, where sometimes you know, after I, I wrap up recording the show, uh, something will pop up in my news feeds that says, oh, I should have included this. So here's an article that was published at the end of February. And it talks about an Oklahoma teacher uh, that freaked out over a boy's uh, Black King's T-shirt uh, and, you know, said, raised the question to her class that we need White History Month. And again, this came up uh, right at the tail end of February, which is Black History Month, and, you know, didn't make the, the cutoff for, you know, inclusion in my, my show from last week uh, where I kind of wrapped up Black History Month uh, 2021. But let me read the article to you, and it's by Travis Geddes. Uh, and again, I'll post a link to this as well. And it goes on to say, an Oklahoma teacher was too distracted by a black boy's t-shirt to continue her science lesson and instead allegedly asked why there was no month-long celebration of white history. Latrell Taft had been excited to wear the Black King t-shirt he'd gotten for his 13th birthday, but he was confused and embarrassed when his middle school teacher abruptly dropped her lesson on the periodic table and singled out the student after seeing the words printed on his t-shirt with an outline of Africa. And this was reported to KFOR-TV. She said that if she had a shirt that said White Queen, it would have been racist. Latrell said then after that, she said, we need a White History Month. I said, you know, he said, black people don't have enough recognition and we barely learn about 
black people in February at my school. The teen's mother, Melissa Shirley, said she contacted Heartland Middle School as soon as her son told her about the teacher's reaction, but she was disappointed by the response. But the school district issued a statement the following day to the TV station saying that the teacher's conduct was in fact under investigation. Edmond Public Schools is aware of an incident uh, in the classroom at Heartland Middle School involving a district employee and a seventh grade student who wore a t-shirt featuring an outline of Africa and the words Black King written on the front, district officials said. Upon becoming aware of the incident, the school site and the district began a prompt investigation which is ongoing. District staff is also in contact with the parent of the student. The article goes on to say most of Latrell's classmates who were predominantly white agreed with the t-shirt agreed with the teacher that the t-shirt was racist and said the teen was embarrassed by the scrutiny. Uh, the, the teen is quoted as saying, I'm proud of my blackness and she will never take it away from me. And he intends to wear the t-shirt again. Uh, he says, quote, I would tell her black is beautiful. So I, I see this, I saw this article and in the context of Black History Month, you know, obviously uh, it, it raised uh, a little higher level of importance uh, to me and, and hopefully to the, to the, the diaspora at large, uh, but it is part and parcel of something we see more and more of in, you know, this age in America. And I think this would, would fall under, you know, what is loosely called cancel culture, that we are in an age where if someone or some group uh, does not like what uh, another person or another group is saying, then the, the, the process of, of canceling them, of cancel culture, takes effect and we go through this, this uh, almost cathartic motion of attacking and dismissing the, the person at the center of the issue. Uh, and and you know doing whatever we can to to minimize almost to the point of non-existence uh, what has happened and what this person is. We've seen this with you know political figures. We've seen this with entertainers. We've seen this with uh, you know as I said celebrities uh, all across the spectrum. We see people who see something they don't like. Um, and just decide to take it upon themselves to, you know, inflict cancel culture, culture on that individual. Uh, it, it is something that, you know, we as a, a community and we as a country are going to need to work hard to eliminate from our lexicon and really reach out and make the efforts to be more understanding and more uh, inclusive and broader thinking uh, about things between us that are different. Um, you know, one of the strengths of this country is the fact that it is comprised of people with very real and, and very significant differences. And when we can, you know, use those differences in a positive and constructive fashion, uh, our community, our, our society, and our country uh, benefit from it. It all, it all moves to the better.
So, you know, whether it's, you know, laws in the state of Kentucky that, you know, make it a crime to have crosswords or or to throw an insult at a police officer, which, if you think about it, uh, really, does that really hurt or injure them? Uh, Or whether it is this, you know, discussion of, and I've heard this multiple times, you know, there's a Black History Month. How come there isn't a White History Month? Well, you know, in, in my opinion, you know, and, and, and I've heard the answer given when, when I've heard this question posed in the media, uh, because uh, the 11 other months of the year are White History Month. Um, you know, the, the contributions to American history by people of color uh, beyond, you know, just black contributions. But if you look at, you know, contributions of the Asian community, of the Latin X community, of, you know, the, the gay community, of the Native American community, all of these communities have contributed significantly and sub- substantially to this country and to the advancement of what this country stands for. And the fact that we see more and more people who are willing to uh, isolate and attack and, and you know, segregate these groups out uh, simply because their views are different uh, is something that we are going to have to correct if we are going to you know, make this nation uh, again into the leader in the world of equality and accessibility and, you know, the, the place where people can come and be their best person. So, you know, our, our battle plan, our call to action plan has to be to make conscious effort to see the other side of, of issues, try and see it from the other perspective. Uh, reach out and learn more. As we often say on this show, dig wider and dig deeper and find the truth. All right. So, you know, that that's a noble cause that we all should take up. And I would hope that each and every one of you will. All right. So with that being said, uh, we'll wrap up the show for this week. As always, I want to thank you for listening Please make sure that you are wearing your mask when you need to be wearing your mask and staying safe and distance when you need to be distance uh, and continue washing your hands and not touching your eyes, nose or mouth, doing all the things you need to do in order to keep yourself, your family, your community and our country safe from this COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, we are making progress, but we still have a distance to go. So on that, everybody, please take care. Thank you for tuning in. Again, if you want to comment, firedupradio at yahoo.com is the email address. Please send me your thoughts, and I would love to, to read them. Take care, everybody, and I look forward to speaking to you again in seven days.
this message wherever you stand calling every woman calling every man we're the generation we can't afford to wait the future started yesterday and we're already